the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon to you. Ninth day of January in a brand new year, 2024. And great to have you on board as we welcome you into this edition of Lifeline. And as always, kind of a great privilege to spend some time with you talking about the issues of the day and their impact on your Christian walk. We're going to do more of the same on today's program. Unfortunately, kind of a slow news day, not a lot going on, not much to report. So here was some recipes for apple pie. <laughs> Just joking. Is a best-selling author, educator, and attorney, Joe Murray, author of the best-selling book, Take Back Education. And counselor, as always, a delight to have you join us. Always a privilege and happy new year to you. Happy 2024. You know, I think we're going to be in for kind of a snoozer this year, don't you? Yeah, you know, I was just thinking, it's just it's such a shame there's nothing going on in the news worth discussing. <laughs> you know, in this presidential election thing, you know, uh, we know this is going to be you know, nothing to talk about. Boy, I'm telling you. All right, well, let's get that kind of out of the way first, shall we? We'll just rip the Band-Aid off. And I, and I first want to get your take, because I know as a licensed attorney, and you practice for many, many years, there's got to be degrees to which attorneys watching other attorneys argue the law must be fascinating, either to figure out uh, what their insights and and, uh, uh, approach might be or to try to understand exactly why they're making some of the um, some of the arguments that they are. And I've got to wonder if that is the case today. I have to say, you know, there's there's a lot going on right now in terms of the challenges that, that Donald Trump is facing in courtrooms. And we know that he has long had a attraction to, shall we say, attorneys that do better on television than they do in front of the bench. But that said, I have to wonder what was going through John Sawyer's mind today. He is, by the way, for listeners, the the lead lawyer um, in the argument concerning uh, presidential immunity. What was going on in his mind when he was asked by one of the judges if a president could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival, not be impeached, whether or not he would be subject to prosecution And the answer was that only if he were impeached and convicted first, suggesting that a political process would have to occur before a legal or criminal process. What was your reaction to that remark, and does it help or hurt Trump's case? 
Well, you know, here's the problem. You know, I've argued before many uh, U.S. appellate courts, and and they love to ask you these questions that really are not related to the case, but will take you down rabbit holes in order to try to to, to catch you up and, and try to make you argue the absurd. And what Sawyer was arguing, it, it sounds absurd to the non-trained ear, uh, that the idea that a president could order an assassination of his rival and escape liability, uh, but for only if there's an impeachment. So if the party controlling both, uh, at least the House, is favorable to the president, then of course he would evade the process. Now, I would argue two things. One, I think if that ever came out, I don't think that party uh, loyalty would be an, an issue here. I think that everybody would file the impeachment uh, proceedings immediately and it would go as planned. But this argument strikes of the diplomatic immunity argument. And we've all seen it, whether you have watched Law and Order or any of the TV shows you have the the folks over from a foreign land they either murder or rob or you know something to that extent and they can't be touched because of diplomatic immunity that is what Sawyer is arguing with with the presidential immunity with executive immunity that it, it is broad and it has to be broad the same reason we have diplomatic immunity and I think what happened is and I and I don't I'll be honest I don't know much about the judge who asked the question but this was one of those questions that I think a law clerk prepared knowing it would grab the headlines. And, 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 and I think people are going to associate that with President Trump and then, of course, try to build the, the argument that he, he'll try to get away with anything. And, and that, that's his, his uh, braggadocious personality. But I don't think it's that far out of the ordinary from a legal perspective. But from a public relations perspective, it, it's a nightmare because, again, it takes the issue away from what what's going on. And it takes it into the realm of the hypothetical. And if you're Donald Trump, you want to kind of keep it to the facts. You don't want to have to go off to these hypotheticals, what ifs, because they never end well for him. Yeah. And, you know, uh, one, one observation is. If I might, at least in the case of diplomatic immunity, uh, were someone that had that kind of coverage um, commit a crime in the United States, while they yeah. might be immune from prosecution, they would not be immune from deportation, would they? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So that that is what the thing they can strip your diplomatic immunity away, and you either can stay if they don't deport you, and then be subject to the laws of any net future crimes, or they kick you out, and, and they and they and they strip the diplomatic immunity of not just you but of the entire country. Uh, and, and and arguably, and that's what I I think everybody would understand. At least I hope we're not that far gone yet. That if it ever came out that a president actually ordered an assassination of a political rival here on domestic soil. I don't care if it's a Republican or Democrat. I don't think that our congressman would sit up there and try to justify it because you have to remember, Craig, if such allegations were ever raised, an impeachment would not be there to convict him. It would be there to find the evidence. Okay, so of course the, the impeachment itself, hopefully, would be non-political. Now, I think what we saw with Trump is that impeachment became very political, and a number of constitutional attorneys at the time were warning, saying, "Look, if we go down this process of impeaching because we don't like him, or finding a reason to politicize and impeach, you're going to tarnish one of the most important fail-safes we have in this Constitution." And I do think we did that, and we're seeing it now because now we're, you know, we're impeaching Mayorkas. We're going to report, uh, impeach uh, the Secretary of Defense. I, I think impeachment has become so watered down that it has lost that 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 essence that it had. Because in in, in its nutshell, impeachment is basically let's find facts. It's a trial. Okay, so if a president ever did that, I don't think there would be any objection to Congress 
finding out whether or not the facts justify the charge. You know, what's fascinating, uh, too, to your observation, Joe, it, in 50 years, basically, since Watergate, when just the talk of the president being impeached would be enough to put the fear of God in him and resign as as Nixon did in what 1973. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. We fast forwarded to a time when the impeachment of, or at least the attempt uh, in in dealing with uh, Clinton, and then twice over with Trump. Now there's talk about Biden being impeached, and you know on and on the list goes. I think you're right. It after a while it begins to take some of the bite out of it. It, it, it seems to reduce the level of severity. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we're, we're talking about not only impeaching presidents, but cabinet members. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to be wrong on this, but I don't think we've ever filed impeachment papers against a member of the president's cabinet. And, and I fear that we're going to enter a time in our history where impeachment is going to become uh, overkill uh, and, and that it's not going to do what it needs to do. Because you point out exactly what happened when Nixon saw that impeachment was coming and he might have realized that his hands were dirty. Rather than be embarrassed, he wanted to he wanted to leave and he stepped down. And, and I also will say Nixon, I think, did what was best for the country, because you have to remember Richard Nixon also in 1960 when he was confronted with evidence that the dead voted in Illinois and Texas said, are you going to charge this, sir? And he goes, no, I'm not going to cha- excuse me, challenge this because it's going to do more harm than to the country. I think Nixon was one of those few. He might not have been very uh, damaged in terms of character sometimes, but his ultimate goal was he wanted to put the country first. He did that when he refused to challenge the, the validity of the 1960 election, and he did it when he stepped down in Watergate. Uh, and now it looks as if both Republicans and Democrats, whether it's Stacey Abrams or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, now we, we are constantly challenging the elections, and Nixon saw that if you challenge the elections, you undermine democracy in our system. If you undermine our system, then it begins to unravel. Uh, so, yeah, Nixon might have been a flawed individual, but at least he was smart enough to put the country before his own personal interests. Yeah, and, you know, uh, sadly, again, as I suggest, when you when you begin to get on to a role of impeachment, uh, as we saw uh, post-Nixon with, in, with 97, 98, I guess it was, yeah. with Clinton being impeached, and then uh, Trump's two impeachments. After a while, it begins to sort of lose the bite, lose the sting. And, and you know, I, and I guess the other part of the process, which is difficult to separate from, and that is we don't we want this to be based on the facts, not based on politics. But then we turn over the responsibility of making decisions to politicians. So is it any wonder everybody queues up to their side? And uh, instead of being uh, politically blind and just doing um, what they should do based on the facts, they they tend to want to lean towards, well, if you're going to go after my guy, I'm going to go after yours, and it's tit for tat, and suddenly you find yourself um, in in the situation we're in today. Yeah, and and I don't want to water down what Bill Clinton did, but I remember arguing against impeachment in the late 90s because while technically it may have been a high crime and misdemeanor, Optically, it's not. To me, I've always thought impeachment should be of such gravity that it would unite the nation. Unite the nation in guilt, right? So, as you just said, if the evidence was trending towards that this president was guilty, it's powerful enough to cross party lines, and that's what we've seen 
you know, I think the last time we had an impeachment so powerful was Andrew Johnson, but even then it kind of divided to somewhat party lines. But Clinton's was so weak, it was over what the definition of is, is it was so technical, and, and Trump's came with such a cloud of, of, of political manipulation that we allowed these politicians to remain politicians. Impeachment was supposed to be so great. It's high crimes and misdemeanors, right? And misdemeanors meant a little something different back then than it does today. And it was supposed to be so great that the actual crime, if committed, would bring the partisans together. And I think when we impeach on what I would consider namby-pamby stuff, you see it stay in the political realm, and it doesn't elevate to the realm it needs to be, which is that pseudo-legal realm. And it's not to water down the actions or accusations against either of these two most yeah. recent individuals impeached. But again, as yeah. you point out, um, when when the constitutional language is high crimes, and then you have to wonder, okay, does this necessarily rise to that level? And if not, what are we doing? Now, you made the comment, and I think it's an interesting observation, that there might have very well been a a clever law clerk uh, behind the crafting of the question that was posed to Trump's lead lawyer in kind of a gotcha moment. We're hearing a similar argument coming from Nikki Haley regarding another type of question that seems to be decidedly in the gotcha moment. Let's talk about that next. With us today is best-selling author, educator, and lawyer Joe Murray, a look at the events of the day and their impact on your life. We'll take a brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with the best-selling author of Take Back Education. He himself an educator and an attorney and a journalist for many, many years, Joe Murray. Now, Joe, you talked about a gotcha moment. <laughs> that certainly seems to be the argument that uh, Nikki Haley has been putting forward, suggesting that it was a Democrat plant that had the audacity to pose a question towards her regarding the cause of the Civil War. But I have to wonder, it, would it be any different if they could prove that it was a Republican who asked that very same question? And what is your sense? Uh, when When the question was posed, you see her turn her back and walk away from the questioner, begin to smile, and then remark about, well, you couldn't have asked a simple one, and then proceed to give an answer that quite apparently skirted around the very core issue. Um, And I have to wonder whether or not that was just a gotcha moment that she was totally unexpected and unprepared for, or in her long pause, did she deliberately give an answer because she is trying to play both ends against the middle, given some of the feelings regarding the history of the Civil War and the Confederacy from, quite frankly, the part of the country that she hails from? And, okay, I am not, I'm going to be, you know, going to play all the cards on the table. Nikki Haley is not one of my most favorite of the folks running in 2024, but I do have to defend her here because her response was, and I pulled it up over the break, yeah, I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms, and what people could and couldn't do, to which the person says, thank you, and the year is 2023, and it's astonishing to me that you answer the question without mentioning the word slavery. Um, This was a setup, because technically what she said is correct. I think if you ask any historian, myself included, slavery was not the only cause of the Civil War, 
right? We had slavery, and it was a brewing from from Kansas to all this stuff. Slavery was 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 boiling under. But then you also have to go back to 1828 with John C. Calhoun and nullification and the idea of states' rights that was was that was kind of boiling in the South as well. And you also have to ask yourself if Abraham Lincoln did not win in 1860, would we have gone to a civil war? If we had a president, Stephen Douglas. Would the South had seceded from the Union? I don't think so. So the Civil War was a perfect storm of of, of consequences in a in a relatively young nation uh, trying to find itself. As she says, what type of government are we going to have? One that is one that is geared towards a federal society where the federal government has power over the states. Are we going to have one that that it has freedom for all or for a, fruit, a few? That's what she said. And I think this question was designed to trip her up and I think to make the Republican Party seem racist. I mean, you have DeSantis in Florida. Uh, they're going after him over the school standards and, and how he, they, you know, how the standards allegedly said that slavery uh, was a benefit for those that were in it. So I think it's part of a bigger picture trying to make this Republicans look backwards on slavery. And I think what she said was accurate. I think you're right. I don't think she was prepared. Uh, I think she kind of stumbled along trying to make sure she didn't say something that alienated because you also have to remember this is the same Nikki Haley that removed the Confederate flag in South Carolina. She's the one that brought the Confederate flag down. So I think to insinuate because she expressly didn't say slavery, she's out of touch, uh, that to me is a big fail on an attack. You can get you can attack Nikki Haley on so many other things. Uh, slavery in the Civil War to me is just too silly. I, you know, and you're right. I, I think to the degree that her answer was not inaccurate, just arguably incomplete, but but I, I have to wonder whether or not it demonstrates something else. Um, if, if a random person at a town hall meeting can trip her up that easily on what we know is a lightning rod topic, we know even as the arguments as to whether or not Confederate statues and memorials remain or go, even the fight over the recent events at Arlington Cemetery um, back in Virginia, all raise that sense of, of heightened sensibility over this subject matter. So I guess my question is, in your opinion, what was her answer intentionally broad and vague because she was trying to avoid stepping in it or did she prove herself to be quite frankly ill prepared for the potentiality of that kind of a question because let's face it, it, it let's say for just for the sake of argument that she were to win the Republican primary I don't think there's a chance of that happening but were that to be the case now she's got a run where she has to answer questions uh, potentially from both sides so at one point or another somebody is going to try to trip you up what does it say if you're not ready yeah i think that's a good point i think in this election you know we've seen trump dominate the headlines with you know is he confident is he not is he a dictator and then when you get away from trump you see the move, the issue go to immigration or inflation uh which tend to be the big ones and and that that's kind of the trifecta that's that's kind of fueling this election so i'm sure her handlers were not really wondering about you know, the cause of the Civil War, that seems to be such an obscure question from a historical standpoint, uh, not realizing the the kind of potential bombshell that it could could set off if she answered the way she did. And that goes to say that I think you're right on both counts. I think she was not prepared. And in that moment, she 
decided to exercise so much caution that she seemed like she stepped in it avoiding trying to step in it and I think that's unfortunate because I think that's the one thing about Trump and I even think about Vivek and and maybe DeSantis sometimes I don't know about him is at least they will answer it truthfully now they step in it they'll they'll clean it up we all know that Trump steps in it quite frequently and then we'll try to clean up but I, I think her her she was too unwilling to remove herself from the concept or the role of politician and become someone human. And I think that is one of the biggest disconnects she has with voters. She wants to be too polished, too well rehearsed, uh, too so well rehearsed that she doesn't make a mistake. And in doing so, you end up making a mistake. Uh, let me pivot to another topic before we move on from uh, the political hotbed. Um, yeah. There has been a sudden flood of retirements or retirement announcements. Uh, members of the House in particular deciding that's it. They're not going to run for re-election this year. Um, as we look at some of the announcements that have come through, uh, Doug Lamborn from Colorado, uh, Blake Luckenmeyer from Montana, uh, John Curtis also from Utah, uh, on and on the list seems to go. Um, Bill Johnson as well from Ohio making the announcement. Uh, do we read anything into this? Um, is it indicative of a, of groups of people that just say, you know, we recognize this is going to be a rough and tumble political year and they just don't want to put themselves and their family through it? I think that's what we're at. I think we have now reached a turning point starting in 2016 that politics is no longer to be for the faint of heart, that we have both sides now that are pretty much entrenched, and there's very little room for compromise that we've had just 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we might be, you know, you know, arguing like cats and dogs, but there was always a way to find some compromise, and, and that, that window has gradually been shrinking Uh, I would say since the 1960s, uh, since the Woodstock era, that window has has shrunk gradually. But I think we saw in 2016, I think we saw it close. And the question is going to be, when will it reopen? But until it reopens, I think we're going to be in this, this partisan deadlock where we are not going to have compromise so what's going to happen is it's all going to determine on who wins both the house and the senate and the white house that is going to be the ultimate game and the thing is craig you're not going to see either party with large majority i think the days at least for now of large majorities are over you're going to see very razor slim majorities in these these legislative institutions which is going to probably stop things from getting done. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. When Congress doesn't work, that's not always a bad thing. But I think until we find a way to break free of that and, and to and to see each other not as enemies but as, as fellow citizens with differing views, I don't see that changing. Now, I don't know, Craig, if it will ever change. Um, I'm sure they were thinking the same thing in the 60s when the youth had had uh, kind of exposed the big gap between, uh, you know, mainstream America and now the Woodstock generation. But something about this seems different than that, Craig, because I, I see so many that not only are, are arguing against something, like in Vietnam, we were arguing against the war. We were arguing that we don't need to be there. We were arguing for, for freedom. But what we're seeing now is we're arguing for stuff that's also against the Constitution. We're we're arguing for not our basic freedoms, but we're arguing to censor people. 
because it offends our sensibilities. We are so far removed from a consensus anymore, I don't know how we get back there. Well, and that exactly, I think you've, you've really put your finger on the pulse of the problem, and that is that we have, we have seen this major paradigm shift over the last few election cycles where we just focus on beating each other up versus trying to win each other over. And I don't know that a Republican lasts long if we take that kind of stance. If we can't find some sort of reasonable compromise, everybody walks away. They don't get everything that they want. Everybody's a little happy. Everybody's a little sad. I think then we have a chance of surviving. If we can't find that kind of middle ground, that reasonable middle ground, um, even when people, I think, misinformed and misguided, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, that talk about, you know, bringing on the Civil War, I think they don't understand the implications of what that means and that the outcome of, of another Civil War may not quite end like the last one did. And the last one... Yeah, we kept the union together and 700,000 Americans died in the process. What price might we pay if we can't find the middle ground this time around? Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. When we return, pivoting to the question, what makes Martin Scorsese think he's such a theologian? That and more is our conversation with best-selling author of Take Back Education. He is lawyer, reporter, and educator Joe Murray. Continues here on Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 1989, I remember it well. The events that occurred that year in relationship to the release of a film called The Last Temptation of Christ by Martin Scorsese, um, this program actually has its roots in that event because uh, my predecessor long ago went on this radio station to celebrate the notion, and that was a short-lived career. At the time, the big brouhaha over Scorsese's film was the fact that there was a horrifically scandalous depiction of who Christ was that, quite frankly, went to offend the sensibilities of Christians of all shapes, sizes, stripes, and colors, from those within mainstream Christendom to to conservative evangelicals and everyone in between. Unfortunately, it seems as if Martin Scorsese did not learn his lesson back in 1989 because he's back yet once again um, following up with a new film that he says is, quote, destined to take away the negatives associated with organized religion, explaining the thinking behind a new film project, an adaptation of um, a writing called A Life of Jesus, And Joe Murray, (laughs) once again, I have to wonder if um, Mr. Scorsese is about to bite off more than he can chew. Now, perhaps the degree of of, um, reaction, um, you know, this is uh, a lot of years later, might be a little bit uh, weaker, a little bit different. But as you recall, his previous religious film, The Last Temptation, triggered worldwide controversy and um, protests, quite frankly, for a, a very distorted picture of who Jesus was, which, again, assaulted the sensibilities of believers of every stripe and color. Is he about to do it again? Oh, I think he will. Uh, I think he is going to try to depict Jesus as this as this socialist, if not communist-style figure. 
who wasn't concerned about morality and focused solely on helping the poor, he's going to take that Jesuit mindset and, and try to divorce Jesus from the morality and focus on the humanity aspect of Jesus, which there is there. You can't deny it. But the, they're going. It's going to. He's going to try to divorce it from that that moral underpinning that that organized religion helps to protect. You have to ask yourself, why do so many, especially cultural. Uh, theologians dislike organized religion because organized religion helps to protect the core meaning of Christ and his message. They've done it for 2,000 years. And what happens is you can't argue with that, especially back in the day you would be facing excommunication. But as that has weakened and as the role of organized religion has been continually assaulted, the freedom now is to go out there and depict Christ as you see fit. Because that's the key about organized religion. I'm not sitting here and saying organized religion is without sin. Anything that is of man is going to be found in some degree of sin. But what I'm saying about organized religion is it, pre- it prevented this diffusion of everyone creating their own Jesus. It's, it's like when somebody says, well, my truth. No, we don't each possess our own truth because if we do, the truth is meaningless. If we now are able to create our own concept of Jesus, Jesus becomes meaningless. And I think that's what this movie is doing to try to do, to give people the ability to create a relativistic Jesus, and by doing so, water it down so greatly that they are no longer with Jesus. This is heresy on the highest degree. They are going to allow people to attribute to Jesus stuff that should never be attributed to him. We know how the Spanish dealt with this (laughs) many moons ago. We're not going to see that. I think what we're going to see, Craig, is acceptance of this because organized religion has been constantly assaulted. And I'm not just talking about the Catholic Church. In the Protestant churches, we see constant condemnation of policies that are not conservative in nature, but are biblical in nature. And I understand that sometimes you have diehards that go too far. But I think organized religion can work that out. You see Francis doing it right now in the church, trying to strike a balance between both factions of the church. But when you allow the concept of of creating your own Jesus to become an individualized aspect, and you you make religion solely individual, you open the door to relativism that usually organized religion prevented. And I think that's the goal. They want religion to become relative now, because once religion becomes relative, it becomes meaningless. Well, and, and when he says, and I'm quoting here, that the film will, quote, focus on Jesus's core teachings in a way that explores the principles, but does not proselytize. Close quote. Now there can be many yeah. definitions um, to proselytizing, but in 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 the the, the broader sense here, um, as we would apply it from a biblical standpoint, we're, we're talking about basically why Christ came in the first place. Matters of sin, salvation, sanctification, which is at the core of of the, the Christian message. And the notion that somehow we can talk about all of the neat stuff that Jesus talked about, caring for the poor and bearing one another's burdens, things of this sort, but not talk about man's inerrant sin nature, our separation from God because of our sin, Christ's substitutionary work on the cross, the need that that, that mankind is, is, is a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Christ died for all mankind, that we might be forgiven and reconciled unto the Father. Well, if you bend water down that message, then Jesus just becomes another nice guy. He, he joins another list of, uh, of interesting teachers with good ideas that are trying to teach mankind to better behave, 
And if at the end of the day there's not the core focus on sin, salvation, sanctification, if we don't address the heart problem, then we fail to address the, the, the broader challenge that mankind faces. And my fear is, I think you're absolutely right, as much as he distorted the image of who Christ is with the last temptation, I think he's about to do it again. Anytime you want to say, Let, let's, let's talk about the principles without talking about the core issue of sin, I think we're heading into dangerous territory here, and I'm about to feel as if he's going to do it again. No, and he will. And I think the proselytize quote was the one that caught me because I'm sitting here. I'm like, if you are Christian, you understand that that salvation is necessary for entry into heaven. So if you are Christian and you don't proselytize, you're going against what you were taught in the Bible. You have a duty to go spread the good news, the good word. Uh, it's not something that you keep to yourself or, or you interpret in certain ways where you're able to cherry pick. And, and, I, and my fear is, uh, unlike the last temptation, or uh, yeah, unlike the last temptation, we have a culture that is ripe for this type of misinformation, of this type of of creation that is not going to be biblically sound, because we have a society that has that its religiosity has dropped dramatically over the course of the last 20 years, 40 years. And we don't have the fail-safes there to protect and fight against this misinterpretation or this heresy. I would, I'm not going to call it heresy yet because I haven't seen it. But what's suspected to be heresy, and I, I think that's going to be a problem because now you're going to have a younger generation who is going to get their theology from directors in Hollywood. And that is a recipe for disaster. And the and the, the irony is it, it it panders in a sense to yeah. our our very base sin nature because who doesn't want to hear hey you're okay fundamentally you're you're an all right guy there's nothing wrong yeah. with you you know yeah. just a little bit misunderstood well if you can somehow relieve me any of any sense of responsibility or accountability to God or any guilt yeah. or shame uh, then all well, of a sudden hey I, I'm 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 doing all right. And I think at the core, that's what these kinds of messages really appeal to. And, you know, not to just cast stones, so to speak, at Martin Scorsese, uh, although he has a, a history of, of producing uh, theologically abhorrent films, uh, it also panders again to, I think, the, 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 base, the base nature of mankind that, you know, we, we don't want to have to be held accountable to God. Uh, we'd rather believe that we're just okay the way we are. And all this talk about sin, salvation, and, and repentance and turning, well, you know, that that's not something that we necessarily feel uh, feel that we want to voluntarily do. And, you know, we're told that the gospel is an offense to those that are perishing. And when you try to take out the sting uh, of, of sin, I mean, let's face it, at the end of the day, uh, heaven is really meaningless if there, if there doesn't exist the hell. If there isn't a penalty for sin, uh, you know, we, we've Effectively made the gospel message of, uh, you know, invalid. We've 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 basically nullified it, and and I'm, I fear that that's part of the attempt here. While it might not be the the top of the admitted or recognized or acknowledged agenda, it becomes the end result, and that's what really uh, bothers me about this kind of an approach. And that's the point. Let's just assume for a second there is no nefarious motivation from Scorsese, that he isn't out there with a grudge, that he's trying to do good. He thinks he is doing good uh, good work. He mentions in the article that he met with Pope Francis, and he's taking that charge, that artists go out there and help spread the good word. 
But what he's spreading is not the good word. And we know what they say, Craig. The road to hell is paved with good intention. So I'm not even going to try to put on a, a, a nefarious intent on him. Even if his, his intentions are good, it doesn't minimize the devastating impact his work will have in separating people from Christ. And I think that is where organized religion can can kind of prevent the, or provide a fail-safe to step in and say, no, that is not what this is, that is not what Jesus is, and you cannot believe this. And I think it's not going to be able to do it because organized religion has been so beat up, it, it's not going to have the same gravitas that it would have had 40 years ago. Undoubtedly so. Joe Murray with us today. A lot more to cover, including a big whoops at the SEC regarding Bitcoin. All that and more is our conversation with best-selling author of Take Back Education, Joe Murray continues on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. What is one of the largest potential downsides to Bitcoin? (laughs) Well, the Security Exchange Commission unwittingly helped to prove that point. As um, (laughs) the big announcement that it was approving Bitcoin ETF, in fact, was a simple... A a simple busting in to their X account. They got hacked. And I guess this really goes to the heart of why at least people like myself, uh, Joe Murray, have said all along, um, you can't control it. You can't um, police it. You can't track it. You shouldn't use it. And uh, this this laced a little bit of embarrassment for the U.S. Security Exchange Commission uh, that the announcement that it had approved Bitcoin exchange traded funds on their ex social media account was, in fact, uh, not correct, that they were victims of hacking, maybe goes to prove that point. Yeah, you know. This story has just really, first of all, I agree with you. I don't understand this Bitcoin stuff. And if I don't understand it, I don't invest in it. It's as simple as that. I might be missing out on the best thing ever, but I'm going to, I'm going to hedge my bet. But, but imagine this, Craig. Imagine if one of these, these Bitcoin cyber deals, imagine if one of their CEOs had their computer hacked the day before this big announcement, causing market manipulation. You know the SEC would be down there knocking on the door, demanding that the servers be handed over, demanding answers, demanding an investigation. But here the SEC, the the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, their top guy was hacked. And somebody was able to post something that caused a huge swing in the value of Bitcoin, almost up to 48 some thousand dollars, up from 46, a $2,000 swing. And then to cause it to crash back down again to 45,000 after it was announced. This shows the vulnerability of our of our government agencies. And this should be sending a wake-up call to the SEC. If they can get hacked and this can happen, where else are we vulnerable? Okay, that is the question that I'm asking about this story tonight. Not so much about the whole Bitcoin, but where are we vulnerable in our government? Where else are we going to get hit and manipulated? Um, because, like, like I said, Greg, you could have made some great money on this right off the way if you were able to get in and get out very quickly and and i think that's that's very concerning and if this was a private entity that had caused this manipulation you know heads would have rolled 
Oh, undoubtedly so. This bit at the hands of any uh, major banker out there, say, for example, uh, there would be immediate congressional investigations. And again, I think it goes back to the heart of demonstrating just how vulnerable this whole system is. And, and, and when you create a system or allow a system to to exist that is beyond the reach of, of control, I mean, you know, as much as none of us are fav- in favor of big government, none of us like overregulation, and yet there are some regulations that are put in place to protect us. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that the Federal Insurance Deposit Corporation exists, though, so that if anything nefarious ever happens at my bank, that I am at least insured up to the first, what is a quarter of a million dollars uh, for my funds on deposit. And, and to know that somebody is putting a watchful eye over uh, my money is important. And yet here you've got something that's beyond the control, beyond the reach, beyond the, the taxability. And I think when it, begets, it gets that far beyond, it's just it, it, it is just really it, it's it's worse than gambling. I think you'd do you'd probably have better stake yeah. by going to Las Vegas and you know putting fifty bucks on red or whatever <laughs> than engaging in this. At least I can watch that little ball go away. <laughs> I just hope there's not a magnet under. The- right, exactly, exactly. Hey, speaking of little balls, a good point to end on. It turns to be a little ball or a plug in this case that somehow was not screwed down properly. Investigators saying that a door plug on Alaska Airlines 1282 came loose from fittings that was meant to hold the entire door to the plane. And of course, on the heels of all of this, both United and Alaska are finding loose parts on the Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets. Uh, this is the, the, the plane that is subsequent to the MAX 8 that, as you'll recall, had issues about uh, probably pre-pandemic 2000 uh, um, and uh, I'm going to guess somewhere around 2020, 2019, where uh, literally their ability to control the uh, the rear rudder of the plane was lost, and it ended up uh, crashing and causing significant loss of life. What is it? Is just Boeing's quality control just completely uh, taking a nosedive in recent years? Well, you know, first of all, I want to know where Mayor Pete is. It seems like our country's transportation systems are falling apart. Um, you know, we're having, you know, whether it's in Philadelphia where I-95 is collapsing. Uh, I know it's a truck buyer, but, it, it, you know, we're seeing bridges with with cracks in them all over the country. And we're seeing airplanes that are, that are losing parts midair. Imagine, Craig, if that Alaska Airlines door flew off at 38,000 feet. Oh. They are very lucky. That plane was at 16,000 feet. Yep. Uh, because if you would have been sitting next to that door or somewhere near that door or a flight attendant walking up and down the aisle and that door went off at 38,000 feet, you would have been sucked out of that plane. And it, it could have been a major loss of life. And and, and you have to ask yourself, it's a Boeing, and, and, I, and I don't, there, I'm not saying that there's any correlation going on, but it's more optics. At the end of this year, they were boasting about how they were able to meet their DEI diversity quota in hiring and all that stuff, and they're parading that around. And I want to say to them, look, if you want to do that, that's fine. Do it on your own time. But why don't you focus on your planes right now? Okay? We don't care about you trying to appease anybody that's political. Focus on quality. And I think a lot of our businesses here are not focused on quality anymore. And I think that is very 
concerning. Uh, whether they're trying to do DEI or whether they're trying to be sustainable with green energy and, and, and try to genuflect to these these political movements of the day, we're seeing it start to suffer. And, and I'm sorry, Boeing needs to get back to basics because Boeing's been in a slide for quite some time. And if we lose Boeing, what do we have in terms of air manufacturers? We have nothing. And we either give it to Airbus and we're toast. Well, you're right, because McDonnell Douglas is no longer in the commercial airline business, and uh, they and Boeing were were the two top producers, and if Boeing is severely crippled, or um, let's face it, confidence in this, I mean, I look at this and think, okay, the the, uh, Boeing 737 MAX 8 had issues, now the MAX 9 Mm -hmm. has got issues, does not instill confidence in air travel. We don't want a Max 10. No. <laughs> name. Change the name. <laughs> and, and, and from a trade perspective, Craig, we get a lot of our trade. Uh, you know, our exports are from Boeing. Our, our big number exports are from Boeing. So, again, if we lose this, we're not only going to lose all these jobs and, and all these poor workers out of, uh, out of jobs. We're also going to lose, uh, we're gonna lose a lot of revenue uh, from our exports. Does this necessitate a change in leadership at Boeing? Oh, I think that was needed yesterday. Um, I think I know they had a big meeting there today, and they're talking about how they're going to be transparent. I look at it this way. If you have to tell me you're going to be transparent, I already don't trust you. It should be a given that we're transparent. You shouldn't have to go out there and tell people you're going to be transparent. But we don't need an investigation right now. We need answers, okay? Because like you said, this isn't like something that dropped into their lap like that bolt dropped into this guy's yard, right? This is something that had been a problem. They've known it's been a problem. So what have you done since the MAX 8 to try to rectify these issues? Where are your fail-safes? Where are your security procedures? Where is your quality control? What have you done? And if you have not done anything, you need to go. And you have to wonder also the role of not only the the ground maintenance crews for any of these airlines that own these airplanes, but also inspections by the FAA. And I know they're going to say, well, we're stretched too thin. It's like the USDA. We can only inspect a small percentage of meat that's slaughtered because we just don't have the personnel. Well, maybe we need to rethink that then. No, I'm sitting there. I mean, we're, we're, we're blowing up government in so many other ways. Maybe instead of hiring those IRS agents, we put them to use for the FAA or the SEC or the USDA. I think they do a lot better there than the IRS. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid you're absolutely right, my friend. Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer. He is a radio reporter. Um, and, of course, as you know him as the best-selling author of Take Back Education, the book available through Amazon.com. Joe, as always, we appreciate your time and your insights. There is attorney and best-selling author, educator Joe Murray. Again, the book, Take Back Education. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.